Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store, Route 6A, Orleans, Cape Cod. On the web at birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By the Boston Harbor Island Alliance. Minutes away, worlds apart. Go to bostonharborislands.org for more information. Good morning. Welcome to our show, number 561. Well, here we are in the bleak midwinter, at least up here in the northern tier of states. A time of year when birds have zero interest in the spring nesting season, right? Well, not exactly. In fact, the National Wildlife Federation suggests that right now in the middle of winter is a perfect time to put up backyard birdhouses because the cold months are actually when many species are shopping for nesting places. Eastern bluebirds, for example, start looking for a nest site in February and March since they lay their first eggs in April. So the suggestion is to have boxes up no later than March 1st. Of course, what you put up and where depends on what birds you're trying to get to nest in your yard. And a visit to our Talking Birds Facebook page will connect you to more from the National Wildlife Federation's guidelines on just how to do it. Extra, extra, read all about it. And speaking of that Facebook page, here are some things we hope you'll find interesting right there, right now. Here's one. What would it be like to live in an apartment, in an apartment that attaches to the side of a building like the nest of a cliff swallow? A New York architect wants you to find out. Eagle versus drone. Dutch police are training birds of prey to grab those pesky little aircraft right out of the sky. And Harley and Maxwell, a couple of creative cockatoos, will link you to a couple of crazy, amazing videos there. Some of the things uh, right now on our Facebook page at Talking Birds. And speaking of those drones, by the way, Kevin McGowan from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology will be with us here on the show in a couple of weeks to talk about that subject of drones, along with more about great birds of prey like bald eagles. Well, here's our blog this week. Humans are not the only ones with a junk food problem. Seabirds following fishing boats have their own issues, especially when it comes to providing proper nutrition for their young ones. That's on this week's blog, easily found at TalkingBirds.com. Well, our National Park Service is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, and if you happen to have a fourth grader at home, you'll want to listen carefully in a moment here for some more valuable info about the wonderful Every Kid in a Park initiative. And if you're a young Talking Birds listener in Canada, we have some tips for you on how you might be able to take part in a very special Young Ornithologists workshop. All of this and more right now in this morning's installment of Charlotte's Weblog with our Charlotte Wasilek. Good morning, Charlotte. Good morning, Ray. The new National Park Service program, Every Kid in a Park, is on both Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow along for updates on the initiative, 
helpful links and suggestions for getting active outdoors. Find all the information and more at everykidnapark.gov. I have more photos up on my blog from my recent trip to Banff, Alberta. Clark's Nutcrackers, Elk, and Red Squirrels are among the photos I have posted on my website, prairiebirder.com. The Long Point Bird Observatory in Long Point, Ontario is now taking applications for their Young Ornithologist Workshop. Space is limited to six young Canadian birders ages 13 to 17. Applications are due by April 30th and you can download the form and find more information at birdscanada.org under the Education tab. I highly recommend this workshop for young birders who would like to learn about banding birds, connect with others, and bird one of the most amazing locations in Canada. I was a participant four years ago and it remains one of my favorite birding experiences. That's all for this week, Ray. I'll talk to you next time. That's this morning's installment of Charlotte's Weblog. Be sure to check out great bird photos and a whole lot more from Charlotte upon the prairies of Alberta, Canada at prairiebirder.com. That's prairiebirder.com. And thank you, Charlotte. And still to come on our show today, we take a look at another of the many threats to bird survival, TV and radio towers. And we welcome a special guest who will explain how turning off some of the lights on those towers may help solve the problem. We'll also present installment number two of our new Let's Ask Mike Live segment with Mike O'Connor from Cape Cod's Birdwatcher's General Store. And now we head out toward the other coast, way out west, to meet a bird whose name is misspelled. Maybe more than any other species, it's today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. If you took a blue jay, enlarged it a bit, stretched out its crest, removed the white markings from its wings and tail, and changed its upper half to black or dark blue, you'd have a jay that's stellar. That's S-T-E-L-L-E-R, as in Georg Wilhelm Steller, the German botanist, zoologist, and explorer after whom the Steller's jay is named. Way back in 1740, Steller was part of an expedition to the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia's far east from where he made his way to Alaska's Kayak Island. While he was exploring there, he became the first European to describe numerous North American plants and animals, including the jay that was later named for him. In his brief study of the bird, Steller was able to determine that it was related to the blue jay, offering some proof that Alaska was indeed part of North America. The Steller's jay completely replaces the blue jay in the coniferous forests of the western half of North America, with a range that extends from Alaska to northern Nicaragua. And in Colorado, there are reports of Steller's jay and blue jay hybrids. The blue jay's vocalizations are sometimes described as harsh and strident, but they're downright musical compared to these calls of the Steller's jay. Like its blue jay cousin, the Steller's jay is an excellent mimic that can imitate birds, squirrels, cats, dogs, chickens, and even mechanical objects. Here's a stellar interpretation of a red-tailed hawk. Hmm, 
Not as good as a Blue Jay's red tail imitation, maybe, but not bad. The Stellar's Jay, Cyanocita stellari. Today's Talking Birds featured Feathered Friend. Thanks again for being with us here on our show number 561. Hope you'll visit our website, TalkingBirds.com. We have some new stuff there. And uh, please visit us on our Facebook and Twitter pages, too, at Talking Birds. Well, as we heard, nearly 7 million birds are killed every year in the U.S. by crashing into communications towers, those big TV and, yes, radio towers. Dr. Al Manville was the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's national lead on avian structural impacts under the Division of Migratory Bird Management, retiring in 2014, and was instrumental in developing new guidelines to reduce the impact of lighted communications towers on migratory birds that crash into them. And he joins us on the phone now from just outside of Washington, D.C. Good morning, Al. Morning, Ray. How are you this morning? I'm well, thank you. We got a lot of snow cover here, but uh, it's uh, looking pretty nice. We're melting here, so that's good. Well, you have a lot to melt still, don't you, John? <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Indeed. You got clobbered. Well, Al, if I understand this correctly, a new FAA directive says that those non-flashing lights on the sides of TV and radio towers should be shut off and that big towers should use only flashing lights. Uh, is that roughly correct? And if so, what's the reasoning and what's the impact? Well, uh, actually, the FAA directive uh, allows the um, extinguishing of the so-called steady red LA-10 lights. Um, mm -hmm. The Federal Communications Commission has actually come out with regulations where effective immediately um, t uh, new towers over 350 feet uh, cannot have these steady red lights on them. And then over uh, beginning in September, towers... Uh, 151 to 350 feet uh, uh, also will not uh, be allowed uh, for new construction to have lighting. But the lighting issue is a, is a big deal, and it's been followed for years. The first published issue about tower collision and lighting occurred in 1948 in Baltimore, Maryland, at a radio tower. And I know when I uh, was a brand-new branch chief with a Division of Migratory Bird Management back in early 1998 uh, there was a single night um, collision event out in western Kansas where some 10,000 Lapland longspurs and meadowlarks and others uh, collided uh, with three communication towers and there was a uh, lighted gas pumping station near the ground which the thought was uh, had attracted them. So that, uh, that brought the attention of the issue uh, front and center to the Fish and Wildlife Service and I had as a scientist been following this a little bit before, but this really uh, got us more involved. And long story short, um, we ultimately uh, started to try to look at more closely the effects of lighting on migratory birds, other than what had been published in, in the literature by folks like uh, Dr. Sid Guthrow and Michael Avery and certainly others. And uh, we, um, the service uh, participated, and I had the privilege of chairing the Communication Tower Working Group. We developed a research subcommittee of that group to try to begin to move forward. Meanwhile, in 2000, in your intro, you mentioned that uh, the service uh, created uh, voluntary Communication Tower guidelines. I had the privilege of co-authoring that and then updated that in 2013 with the new lighting standards. Um, 
service was involved in, in rulemaking uh, with the FCC, which began around 2006, and that's, that's continuing. And then in, uh, oh, around 2003, there was an opportunity to begin a major study in Michigan, uh, putting money uh, from the Michigan Attorney General's office into a research effort um, looking at uh, state police communication towers and three tall communication towers around the state to try to determine, okay, what, what about lighting, these steady red lights, does it make a difference if we turn them off? And um, to, the, uh, to the praise of the Federal Aviation Administration, they provided us a variance to actually allow us to turn off these so-called L810 steady red lights and then use... Um, white strobed or red strobe or strobe-like lights and compare the results of what happened when the lights were turned off. And to our amazement, um, in cases where the lights were turned off on these tall towers, um, mortality dropped by as much as 71%, which was highly significant. Mm. So it's like, whoa, we're on to something here, which clearly there had been other evidence in the past, but this was pretty definitive. And then Dr. Joelle Gehring, who was our principal investigator at the time, she also, uh, I got some money from the U.S. Coast Guard, and so we did a study on a what's called Rescue 21 project for the Coast Guard, looking at the same kind of effects. Did, did this lighting, um, by reducing it or eliminating it, have the same impact on birds? And basically the results from the Coast Guard study replicated the results from the Michigan State Police study. Mm-hmm. So, bottom line, we wanted to try to get the FAA to change their lighting variants. They had a, a, a circular which they had updated in 2007, um, and we began the process. Um, to Joel's credit, she really pushed this hard. Um, she um, was very diligent and, and working with MI also was involved quite a bit, but not as much as she. And then ultimately, uh, she became the Federal Communication Commission's wildlife biologist on staff, so she's been working in that position. And um, finally, um, to the credit of the FAA, they uh, implemented uh, this change in in lighting. Um, They don't like to call it regulations, but I I think that's what they are, basically saying that that, uh, we can now eliminate the steady-burning red lights. They did what are called pilot conchus beauty studies to make sure that, and and I'm a pilot, and I do fly at night or have in the past, um, these, this lighting change makes it visible to, to pilots, and certainly it worked. And so, uh, to their credit, recognizing that they have clearly other priorities, not to mention budget and, and aircraft uh, safety and national security, and today with the Super Bowl drones mm-hmm. flying around the, the stadium, uh, they, have, uh, they have gone out of their way to, to protect migratory birds, and, and I think they're due a lot of credit. So um, mm-hmm. the thought is, based on what we have seen from research studies, uh, ours in Michigan and, and Joel's uh, with the Coast Guard in Michigan and New Jersey and elsewhere, that um, if we could get these lights eliminated on all towers, um, that could eliminate mortality essentially back of the envelope by at least 50%. Um, I guess once we start moving on this, and the FCC is already moving, um, um, the FAA's uh, circular provides the opportunity to move forward. They have some paperwork requirements uh, that have to be supplied to them as, as lighting is changed out, but, but uh, um, that doesn't look like any, any great difficulty. And in the long run, this is going to, if we can get the industry, particularly 
the towers that are out there now with the steady burning red lights, if we can get those extinguished, uh, and uh, they, they can be on existing towers, that's going to save the industry uh, a lot of expense, both in energy and maintenance costs. Uh, um, the changes are, are relatively inexpensive, and, you know, we're going to be doing some good things for migratory birds. And the, the frustration with, with the migratory bird populations in this country, there are 1,027 birds that are protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Uh, and of those birds, um, 36% or over 366 of them are in decline, in some cases a uh, serious decline. So this is, a, this is a real challenge. And from a Fish and Wildlife Service perspective, where they can use conservation measures uh, to avoid or minimize mortality and injuries to birds, that's the direction that they want to go. And that's exactly what the Communication Tower Guidelines uh, recommend. Um, I, since I co-authored them, I'm pretty familiar with them. Um, they, um, um, they're going to reduce mortality, and um, if we could reduce, you know, you mentioned in your opening comments, seven million birds are estimated killed in the U.S. by communication towers each year. That's a that's that's pretty close to probably what it is. And if we could cut that in at least one half, that would be doing the birds a real service. And uh, with all these declines and all the other things that are happening. Uh, the, what I call the, the cumulative effects uh, to migratory birds, and you, you begin at the top with, with uh, impacts from domestic and feral cats. That's estimated at a median number of 2.4 billion mm-hmm. birds per year, which is astronomical. Collisions with buildings up to a billion birds per year, and then pesticides, over 92 million uh, in, in one study. Wire collisions at uh, uh, distribution and transmission wires uh, up to 12 million electric wire, uh, um, uh, or excuse me, uh, electrocutions up to 12 million, wire collisions up to 57 million, uh, and then commercial wind, to- uh, wind turbines and so on, uh, 700,000 or so per year, and then you add uh, another 7 million, and all the other, the natural mortality, and then these, these other um, human-related mortality issues, suddenly the question comes up, well, which straw is going to break, break the camel's back? Mm-hmm. What Mortality impact is going to, um, you know, reverse bird populations, uh, put them in a in a spiral dive, and then of course we have to add climate change, which is a, a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And so here, if we can do good things, and it, I want to point out, Ray, it's not just communication towers; it's it's lighting on other tall structures like the Washington Monument, uh, like bridges, uh, like the top of wind turbines, uh, like tall buildings, where we can phase out these steady-burning red lights that are really attractive to birds, particularly when they're migrating at night and when you have inclement weather events occurring, then that's going to make a real difference. And that's kind of the direction we're headed here. And, of course, I'm no longer fed, so, you know, I can push this uh, Mm -hmm. from my teaching role at Johns Hopkins University or uh, from my role as a consultant. But but, uh, hopefully the the Fish and Wildlife Service will continue to to push this effort. So I would say it's a very positive step in the right direction. and, Mm -hmm. And all those involved should be uh, applauded for this effort. Lots of challenges, but uh, making progress certainly on some fronts. Definitely. Dr. Al Manville was U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's national lead on avian structural impacts with the Division of Migratory Bird Management. Al, thanks so much for telling us about the developments and for your work in uh, helping us to make some progress for bird survival. You're most welcome, Ray, and you have a good Super Bowl Sunday. And your prediction is? Uh- 
<laughs> I would say uh, Carolina, but you know, I'm hopeful that that uh, Peyton will will uh, prevail. So we'll see. That's why they play the game, as they say. You got it. Up next, it's our mystery bird contest. In just one minute. Did you know that winter is when backyard birds need our help the most? Birds' energy demands are huge in the cold weather, and natural food sources are scarce, especially during snow and ice storms. Here's an idea. As you're stocking up on winter supplies for yourself, pick up a feeder and wild bird food for your backyard songbirds. Look for the Audubon Park brand, a top choice among bird lovers for more than 40 years. This season, try the brand's new songbird selections with NutriThrive line, which is enhanced with vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids that birds need but that have become scarce in the natural world. Like Audubon Park Bird Food on Facebook to join the conversation about feeding the birds. Audubon Park's products are made in the USA and meet the highest quality and safety standards in the industry. And Audubon Park's products are easy to find at your supermarket, lawn and garden store, farm and feed market, and online retailers. For more information, visit AudubonPark.com. That's AudubonPark.com. Get some for your backyard birds today. Audubon Park Wild Bird Food. Mystery Bird Contest, you're eligible if you haven't won here on Talking Birds in the past six months. Let's get right to it. Our number, we urge you to call as soon as possible. 781-837-4900 is the number to call. 781-837-4900. Our prize is the brand new Droll Yankees Cutest Chickadee Feeder. Perfect size for your chickadees and a lifetime warranty against squirrel damage is included. And here is the sound of our mystery bird. It's a bird with a large head and a tiny bill, but a big mouth. Very well camouflaged in colors of brown, black, and gray with a white band across its throat. Our bird is found in grassy or shrubby areas in the western states where it feeds on night-flying insects. It is one of the few birds known or thought to hibernate during the winter. What is it? 781-837-4900. 781-837-4900. Tell us what it is or take your guess. 781-837-4900 on our mystery bird contest. Meanwhile, we go to Let's Ask Mike live in just one minute. Public ferry service to the Boston Harbor Islands has ended for the season, but you can still visit the beautiful Boston Harbor Islands peninsulas open year-round. World's End in Hingham, Deer Island in Winthrop, Webb Memorial Park in Weymouth, and Nut Island in Quincy. They're connected to the mainland and accessible by car, offering stunning views of Boston Harbor and its islands, plus birding, hiking, biking, and cross-country skiing. Enjoy your national park all year long. For more information, please visit bostonharborislands.org. Here on Talking Birds Now, a message from our friends at Ducks Unlimited. Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been a world leader in wetlands conservation, ensuring safe passage for nature's most beautiful creations, protection against flooding, and sanctuary for the human soul. If we don't want to grow old in a world without wild places, we must speak up, we must step up, so that we may fill the skies for generations to come. Mike O'Connor from the legendary, the famous Bird Watchers General Store on Cape Cod is with us. Good morning, Mike. Hey, legendary. I like the way that sounds. Good morning, Ray. Would you like your uh, music to open the program? Even yeah, yeah. We... Yeah, because <laughs> this is kind of the tradition, so there it is. A little uh, Let's Ask Mike music, just so everybody knows it's really you. All right, so I feel better now. <laughs> 
So, Mike, I understand you have uh, lots of robins uh, down your way. You know, people still think of robins as the harbinger of spring, but of course we have them around these parts around here all year round, right? We absolutely do. Yeah, we got robins, especially. I, I just thought that a lot of them come down from the north up by Canada. You mm-hmm. hear people call, say that word. The Canadian robins are here. Yeah. And it's, you know, I guess you can tell the difference. Some of them are a little bit darker. People think they're fatter, but there's no evidence of that. But they do get a little darker, especially the males. But whatever they are, there's a lot of them, or at least around here. The, the, the whole Cape seems to be shaking with robins lately. I think the introduction of this crummy weather that we've had covered up a lot of natural food sources in the winter they they tend to eat berries and the berries are getting covered over so they're in people's yards going more for the ornamental plants like hollies and junipers and things and boy my yard is just crazy crazy loaded with them the last couple of days just it it it, it really looks like old time you would think when the birds are all flying by well we got that going on here now and we had the same thing last winter and so Customers were all coming up with ideas what to do because of the really bad winter we had last year. So everybody gave me some suggestions, you know, based on their own experiences. So um, so people said, all right, here's what we do. We do chopped apples, we do raisins, and we do grapes. We cut up grapes and put them out. So I said, all right, I'm going to do a test. So I put out a plate of chopped apples, raisins and cranberries because i didn't have any grapes and i figured let's make a capy on two of the cranberries <laughs> right and it turned out um the chopped apples were a hit hmm. the, the robin came out of their way to eat these chopped up chopped apples just little bits of apples chop yep. them up and uh then they went to the raisins and um and i put this out last winter and the cranberries i put out last winter are still there really? nobody okay. wanted the cranberries so, um, no offense, Ocean Spray, but uh, you're not going to have a big market for the, the robin crowd. <laughs> All right. No cranberries. Put the apples out. Chop up apples. You'll up. get a ton of robins. They'll appreciate it. Thanks for being on with us live, Mike. Talk to you next week, Greg. All right. Mike yeah. O'Connor, Birdwatch's General Store on Cape Cod. It's a legendary place in the town of Orleans. Next time you visit Cape Cod, be sure to visit the Birdwatcher's General Store. Meanwhile, back at the Mystery Bird Contest, here's our Mystery Bird. Seven eight one eight three seven four nine hundred is the number to call. You think you can identify that bird? Let's try uh, Meredith, who's in. We have Meredith uh, Jesse in Rockland, Massachusetts. Good morning, Meredith. Good morning. How are you today? Um, well, thanks. Any robins in your yard? I haven't seen any this morning. I'm looking. <laughs> All right. Let us know if you spot any. Well, this mystery bird will probably not be in your yard. I'm guessing, but what do you guess it is or say it My is? My guess Meredith. is a. Uh, um, the tufted uh, titmouse? The, tufted the uh, titmouse or the tufted titmouse. Yes. No, it isn't. It is not a, a titmouse. But thanks okay, for the thanks. try. All right, keep Thank looking you. for those robins, uh, Meredith. Uh, John is in Hanover, Massachusetts. Good morning, John. Hi. How are things in Hanover, John? How are you doing with the snow? Uh, pretty cool. I live down by the river. It's... Uh Real, real beautiful today. All right. It is beautiful. We got, uh, for those in different parts of the world here, we got some heavy, wet snow that is clinging to the trees, causing lots of problems, but it is very beautiful. Yeah, it's really cool. It's melting down. It's like a, a symphony out there, you know, oh, there's geese chirping in the back. and yeah, it's really cool. Absolutely right. A symphony. I like that. Well, what do you think our mystery bird is? I'm going to take a wild guess and say the cactus wren. <laughs> cactus wren. You're laughing at your own guess. <laughs> it's not a cactus wren. It's out of the right part of the country, but not the right bird. Yeah. All right, we'll try this again. 
Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks for the call. 781-837-4900 is the number on our mystery bird contest. There's that mystery bird again. What do you think it is? We have, uh, let's say, Donald in Abington, Massachusetts. All Massachusetts all the time here this morning. Good morning, Donald. Good morning, Ray. How are you? You sound I'm terrific. Good. Yeah, I'm doing good. All right. What do you say on the mystery bird contest? Ray, is, it, is it the common Powell? Now you're doing even better. Yes. Oh, absolutely great. right. You sound you sound like you weren't all that sure about that. I, I wasn't sure. I heard <laughs> a, a few years ago about a bird that they think hibernates. Yeah, the, some scientists say it does true hibernation. Others say it just goes into what they call a torpor, which is torpor. close to hi- hibernation, but not not quite the same as a, a bear would do, I guess, right. but, but very close. Sure. Yeah, the common poor will, a really fascinating bird. Donald, nice work, and that, that is correct, and we will send you that beautiful Droll Yankees feeder if you'll hold on. Sure, thank you, Ray. Thanks, Donald. All right, the... the um, the common poor will, our mystery bird. And with that, we have run out of time for our show this morning. Thank you so much for being with us. We hope you'll visit our website, TalkingBirds.com, and our Facebook and Twitter pages at TalkingBirds. And uh, send us an email anytime. Give us your thoughts and suggestions about our little show here. We'd appreciate that. Ray at TalkingBirds.com is the address. Executive producer, Mark Duffield. Associate producer, Debbie Bleacher. Our engineer, Jesse Wilkins. I'm Ray Brown. See you next week. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Route 6A, Orleans, Cape Cod. On the web at birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By the Boston Harbor Island Alliance. Minutes away, worlds apart. Go to bostonharborislands.org for more information. Ray Brown's Talking Birds, I love that show. We'll be right back.